Amen. Well, we could do that all day, huh? But uh, I've been looking forward. I've had this like bottled up for a couple of weeks now, and I had coffee this morning, which was a bad choice because now I'm uh, super fired up. So why don't we get our Bibles and let's go to the book of Mark. Uh, The book of Mark, if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along with us on the Bible app. You can find our events there. You'll see, you can take some notes. You can follow along with the scriptures. We would love for you to do that. Or our ushers are coming around. Just get their attention. If you don't have a Bible, would you just take that one? And uh, it's a gift to you. We want you to have a copy of God's Word in front of you. We are in uh, Mark chapter 2. We're going to be picking up in verse 18. Just, just as a reminder where we've been uh, before we did our Christmas series, this, this book of Mark is trying to answer for us two major questions, okay? Just wants us to know first, who is this guy, Jesus? Who, who is this guy? What, what did he come to do? Why is he here? Who is Jesus? And he makes this astonishing claim, chapter 1, verse 1, he says that Jesus is the, the Christ, the Son of God, and now he's out to prove that. Who is this Jesus? But the second question that he's interested in is, is what does it mean then to be his disciple? Which, which makes us intensely interested in this book because we want to be disciples of Christ. And here at Harvest, we want to grow. I want our church to be growing. We, we, we want to grow in, in fruitfulness. We want to see people come into Christ, but, but not just in a, in a quantity of disciples, but a, a quality of discipleship that we know what it means to follow Jesus. And so here we are in Mark chapter 2. That's what we're going after. Like, who is this guy, and how do we follow him? And in verse 18, we're kind of picking up where Jesus is in trouble. While we love him, not everybody loves him, all right? Uh, and, and he is going into battle with these religious leaders. So just a reminder, in, in the book of Mark, we, we see like three groups of people. The first one is his disciples, the people that he has right around him. And then we see the crowds of people that are all kind of uh, astonished at what he does. Then this third group over here, they, these are the religious leaders, all right? And they hate Jesus. They don't love him at all. In fact, they're ready here to fight. And just so we understand the context, Israel, under these guys' leadership, is a landscape of spiritual oppression. It's like miserable to be following these guys. All right? That's that's just the context of what life is like under them. And Jesus is going to stand in stark contrast to them. In fact, Matthew chapter 23, uh, Jesus says of these religious leaders, he, tells, he says they, they tie up heavy burdens that are hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but, but they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. So, so these guys here that we're going to see in Mark chapter 2 are, are such strict rule followers, and they're trying to follow the letter of the law that literally, they want to obey God, but in order to do that, they're trying to add these other rules like application to the law of Moses, and they're like piling them on, all right? So this is not a bag of trash, and it's not also a bag of balloons, all right? This is a bag of rules, got that? This is a bunch of rules. They're like, here, have some more rules, and they're just like piling it on top of these guys, and you just feel the weight, it, and, and, and it's, it's this legalistic, uh, extra-biblical rule book that they're adding. I think we all kind of know that like, religion can easily become this spiritual, oppressive burden, can't it? Where, where you feel like 
you got to do this, you got to do that, you you don't do this, don't do that, you, uh, this is the only way to be accepted, you got to, you got to work, you got to, you got to work harder, you got to try, you got to be a better person, and and this can kind of creep into the church pretty easily, where we, we start, we start believing, like, you, you can't watch that, you can't drink that, you, you got to wear this, you got to say, you, you got to say these words, you got to give this much, you got to be here at this time, and if you don't, if you don't, you can't be part of us, and God's going to get you, right? And, and, and so you're, you feel like you're, you're guilted into these disciplines, and, and I got to I gotta stop being a bad Christian, and so we get to New Year's resolution, and I and, and I gotta like try harder this year, and I gotta I gotta be a, a, a better person, and, and 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 then you fail, and you get in this depressive cycle of 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 failure and, and burdensome expectations. You feel weighed down by this, and then you feel like judgmental eyes uh, looking over your shoulder at how you're failing, and you just you feel the weight of this. Now, then, for some of you, this is like off-putting because you like the rules, and. Um, you know, you, you, you hear me saying this, and, and, and uh, you're, you're, you're kind of, like, put off by, like, are you suggesting that, that it, it doesn't matter how we live? We can do whatever we want. I'm not suggesting that. Okay, we're going to go for a, a balance that's, that's really fueled by, motivated by the gospel. But right here in Mark chapter 2, we're going to see this kind of burden that they're placing on everyone. And if I could give you a big idea of this text, it would be this. When you're living under spiritual oppression, okay, maybe that's you. Maybe, maybe you feel that. Maybe you feel that weight. Well, here's the good news. Jesus changes everything. Jesus is going to change everything. Father, I pray that you would speak to us this morning. I uh, love getting to be with our church family, and what a special thing that we can gather around your word that, that you would speak to us. I pray that you would do that. I pray, Lord, we want to be obedient. We want to, we want to live for you, but not in order to earn your favor, but because we have it. I pray that you would make us more like your son today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, Mark chapter 2, uh, if you're taking notes, let me give you uh, three changes that, that Jesus makes here. Here's the first one that we see right in verse 18. You can rejoice. You can rejoice. Are you there? Are you there? Verse 18. Follow along with me. Here's what he says. Now, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, not rejoicing, okay? And, and people came and said to him, hey, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? You probably said it something like that. And, and Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and the worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Okay, so they're coming up to Jesus and asking a question, uh, but, but just so you know, this is not a, uh, like, like they, they just had some observation, like casually, and, and they just got a, some curiosity. Like, we just noticed this. That's not it, okay? If this is a fight, then this is their first swing at Jesus. What they're trying to do is accuse him by what his 
followers do. So if you're a parent and you walk into a store, you've got a two-year-old, let's say your two-year-old walks into a store, picks something up that's like super expensive, and just shatters it all over the ground. Who's going to be held responsible? You are. You're the one that, like, you should have. You shouldn't have been doing this with your kids. And so they hate Jesus. He's, he's rocking the boat. He's not like all the other religious leaders. And so they want to accuse him by he's being a negligent leader. Look at what they're doing. And, and so verse 18, they say, why, why do John's disciples and, and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but yours do not fast? That's like when people ask, hey, aren't, aren't good Christians supposed to fill in the blank, whatever that, like listen to organ music and, and, and wear JCPenney clothes and volunteer at a soup kitchen and eat Chick-fil-A and vote a certain way, whatever it is. Like, aren't good Christians supposed to act like this? We noticed that you guys aren't keeping up with all the other followers of God, what, what, the, what the real spiritual people do. And, and Jesus, you got to know, no one's going to take you seriously if you don't get serious about following all the rules and making sure that all of your followers do that too. they got to stay in line. So they better be fasting like we are. Okay, can we talk about fasting for a minute? Fasting, um, it, it just means that for a period of time, usually a day, you decide that you're not going to eat, right? And in the Old Testament, this was an act of uh, repentance. It's probably why John's disciples are doing that, because John had come preaching this baptism of repentance, and and it kind of had this association of, like, affliction of your soul. It, It was a symbol of mourning. It means, obviously, something's wrong, or, or I'm in need. That's what you would ask for. So I love what Jesus says to him. I, I love what he, his, his question back to them, verse 19, he says, well, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? He responds with this, this, this analogy, a wedding analogy. And can we just be honest? Weddings are fun, right? For, for the ladies, yes, I, I saw a few guys nodding your heads like it. It's a lot of fun because, honestly, most people are generally happy. You get a lot of good food. You get those sweet little mints that they make, right? You get the wedding cake that's probably like $1,000, so you know it's got to be good. And, and, and then you see a whole bunch of idiots, kind of like me, getting out on the dancing floor and doing things like the cha-cha slide, which should never happen in public. But it's a wedding, so it does. We're, we're having fun. Everybody's having fun. So what Jesus does is he gives this absurd scenario. He's like, just, just imagine for a minute. There's a guy. Everybody else is having fun. We're having a party, and here's a guy over in the corner. He's like, I can't eat anything, and I just need to be left alone. He's like, super sad. No. That they would be totally inappropriate, he's saying, to fast when you're supposed to be rejoicing. It's not time to be sad. Now, no, the, the fasting, just so you know, um, Moses had only required it one time a year on the Day of Atonement, which was an appropriate day for them to be fasting. And so, so what's happening here with these Pharisees is probably not just the Day of Atonement. This is probably, they're following their tradition, and shocker, they've added some more fasts that you need to follow, right? We're trying to get extra credit with God. We're going to fast on Mondays, and we're going to fast on Thursdays because we are so serious about our relationship with God and following all the rules. They wanted to turn Israel into somber town. Anybody watch uh, Santa Claus is Coming to Town over the holidays? You know what I'm talking about, somber town? It's like gray and dull and boring, and there's no toys allowed. Nobody's allowed to have any fun. That's what legalism does. Legalism sucks the fun out of life, and then it gives you this false impression that God is some cosmic killjoy. 
Maybe you or maybe somebody you know is kind of under that impression. That in order to be a Christian, man, Christians are boring. You can't have any. Like if you're going to follow Christ, then you might as well say goodbye to your social life because you can't have any fun. I got to tell you, that, that, that actually probably will happen if you're just trying to toe the line and, and follow the rules and you got to go to church and you got to give more money and you got to do good works, you got to be a better person, try to relieve some sense of guilt, but you don't know who Jesus is and you don't get the gospel because nothing could be further from I mean, honestly, if, if we could get right with God with our good works, then what did Jesus have to die for? You know that following Jesus is not boring. It's not miserable. It's not oppressive. He changes everything. And, and here his disciples get to be with him. They're with the bridegroom right now in his presence. I mean, if you think about it, like a, a wedding day, plus a missing groom is a bad day. But if he's there, it's time to party. Have you discovered how awesome it is to be in God's presence? Do you know that? Can you say with the psalmist, Psalm 84, he says, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, for the courts of the Lord like I can't wait to be in the presence of God and I'm telling you you're only going to want that if you are convinced that God is best there's nobody better there's nothing greater than him I want to be in his presence and you say that like there's there's nothing else that I want more than being with him I, I had a conversation with my son Judah this week we had um he wanted something so badly that he was willing to lie to get it. And so it created a really good teaching opportunity. Not only that we don't lie, but I was more concerned with, uh, you, you, you love this thing so much that you'd be willing to lie to get it. Like, that, that, that kind of means that, that this has become a hard idol, buddy. Like, this is something, you love this more than you love God. And we do this all the time, don't we? And whatever it is that we love more than God, whether it can be our stuff, it can be sex, it can be status, whatever it is that you get. Here's the thing. It is foolish to think that that thing, pursuing that, could really make you happy. And a lot of us have, unfortunately, we have come to the conclusion and have experienced it that when we finally get that thing, it doesn't really make us happy. It doesn't bring us satisfaction. And instead, we're, we're miserable. We're oppressed by those idols. But here's the deal. The Pharisees, had swung to the other extreme. And they're saying, all pleasure is wrong. It's bad. And, and we're going we're gonna, to, our misery in, in fasting and denying ourselves, we're, we're, that defines our sincerity and our spirituality because we're so serious about our relationship with God. And they just proved that they don't know who he is. Because Jesus didn't come to pile on a whole bunch of rules that you have to follow in order to be accepted by God. He's not trying to crush you under the weight of all of these rules, like you gotta follow this, and, and then he's gonna, he's gonna give you these impossible standards and laugh at you when you fail. That's not why he did it. Now he did give the law. He did, he did tell them how they were to live. 
But, but the point of this was to show them you can't do it. But he came because he can. And so he takes our failure and our sin, and instead he gives us his righteousness. So you can, when, when you believe, we're, we're forgiven. We're given grace. Come on, church, do we have reason to rejoice in that? Do you know that being in the presence of this God who loves you and wants to give you his grace, there's nothing greater than that. Let that renew your excitement when we get to worship together. What a sweet thing that we get to do when we're gathering here. And I'm telling you, it's never just another Sunday at harvest. I'm praying that this is going to motivate our worship. Psalm 100 says, hey, guys, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. He says, come into his presence with singing. You, You do that? You know that when we're we're gathering together, we get to come and we get to be with God. And so when we gather together as his church to experience and enjoy his presence together, we can rejoice. This isn't boring. This isn't oppressive. We have discovered that the things of this world, they're disappointing. They don't live up to the hype. We have found something so much better. And the greatest news is that I don't have to earn his approval. He gives it to me. He gives me grace that I don't deserve, and then he invites us to come into his presence to worship him. And, and I know we were singing about that. We want to see his presence. Here, here's the good news. Um, we don't see Jesus physically right now, but that's the promise that he made us that someday, coming soon, we're going to see him, worship him face to face. In fact, Jesus anticipated that. Look, look at what he said verse 20. He said, the days will come when the Son of Man will be taken away from them. It kind of has almost like a, a violent undertone there because Jesus knows what he came to do. And this is his mission as a suffering servant. Because then in that day they will fast. So I don't want to dismiss this as though fasting in and of itself is wrong. In fact, this can be a really helpful discipline for us as we're pursuing Christ, not as a legalistic rule, but a lot of times it, it, it reminds us that we're longing for him to return. We long to see him and be in his physical presence with Jesus. It also reminds us that, that he's left us here on mission and that we're currently in danger of running after all these other things being ensnared by our heart idols. It reminds us that we are in need, that we are desperate for him and dependent on him, and we ask him to work. But when we're with Jesus, there's joy in his presence. And so Jesus then goes on to give these um, two parables, if you will, verses 21 and 22. And if I could just say it this way, most of us don't, we don't repair or sew patches on our clothes. We don't drink wine out of animal skins. But I think the point he's making is pretty obvious. What he's trying to say is Jesus changes everything. Don't try to fit him into your old paradigm for relating to God based on your works or your rituals or your rules. What he's doing is he's, he's showing how Jesus relates to Traditional Judaism, which, if I can say, still actually exists today. This tradition from the Pharisees has been passed down. In fact, I read an article this week, and 
from World Magazine. It was a, a Q&A article um, from, uh, with Ben Shapiro, one of the kind of a young conservative voice who's a Jew. And I could really just appreciate his honesty. Here's what he said about it. He said, uh, in Judaism, you're constantly atoning for your own sins. He says, I'm works-based. Christianity is largely grace-based. See, that, that works-based legalism, uh, that just leads to that spiritual oppression. It just leads to, I got to keep all the rules. And can I just say, good luck with that. No way to live. If it really is up to you, then it's pretty hopeless. But the beauty of the gospel is I don't have to live in despair and under this oppression because Jesus has changed everything. And so we can rejoice. Here's the second thing he's changed. Note this. You can rest. You can rest. Verse 23, he goes on. There's one Sabbath he was going through the grain fields as they made their way. His disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and he also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath and so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So here they are. This is their second question now. And the first is they were trying to attack him for their, the, the, his followers' sin of omission, something that they weren't doing. Now they're going after something that they're committing. Like, I cannot believe what you guys are doing. They're like shocked. This, this is this unpardonable, unthinkable sin. They picked the wrong day to pluck heads of grain. Unbelievable. So, so why is this crazy? Um, the, the Sabbath was given by God as a day of rest. Okay? It meant you don't have to work on this day. But instead of saying, thank you, Lord, they start asking, oh, but what does that mean? What, what actually constitutes work? What, 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 what's technically breaking the rules? How far is too far? And so the, the Pharisees, are, are these rabbis, they, they've tried to come up with rules and, and, and even precedents, if, if, if they can't come up with a rule, to try to clarify the expectations of every conceivable question or scenario that you might find yourself in on a Sabbath day. Because we can't work. It's not, it's, God says no more work. In fact, this is even happening in modern day. If I can give you just a, a, a taste of, of an example of something that they've done. Uh, they go back to Exodus chapter 35, which said that they were to kindle no fire on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to do any work. Don't start a fire on this. And so nowadays they had to start thinking about, well, what about electricity? You know, because technically when you go in and you like flip on the, the light in there, there's a, it's a little spark that starts. And so that's, is that like kindling fire? And the rabbi said, yeah, you can't do that because that's starting a fire and that's, that's doing work. Can't flip on the light switch. And so they've come up with, no joke, there's some people that decided like, well, we need light when it's dark on the Sabbath. So, so they've come up with this thing. I, I've got a picture of it here. This is a uh, Shabbat, uh, Shabbat Sabbath lamp. Okay. 
And the beauty of this thing is you plug it in and it just stays on and, and the light's there. So you never actually have to like flip anything, but you can twist it. You can turn it so that it will kind of cover up the light to, you know, to kind of turn it off. And then, you, you know, turn it back this way and then it turns on. So you never actually, you know, started a fire. And, 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 and then, then somebody else came along and decided to get a little bit more technologically savvy, and they came up with this. This is a kosher switch. I'm not exactly sure how this works, but somehow this, is, this, the, like, you, this means that the, the, the electrical current somehow never goes off. And so you can like flip the lights on. It's like a dimmer switch, but it never technically made a spark, and so it doesn't count as work. But some rabbis are kind of debating whether this is legit or not. Okay, all I'm trying to say to you is this is what happens when you're living under the obligation that we have to have these strict adherence to legalistic rules. You come up with all sorts of absurd applications just to keep the letter of the law. Can you imagine living like this? That's exhausting is what it is. So, so instead of being refreshed as God intended by a day of rest, you're just burdened down by this weight of, of rules that I got to keep. I don't have time to rest. I got to maintain this performance. I got to keep this up. I, like I've got this restless fear that, that I might be breaking some rule unintentionally. I didn't even mean to, and I don't want to do that. And, and, and it actually continually gives us this another false impression about God, that he's this like tyrannical uh, father uh, up in heaven who, who just wants to stomp on his children whenever they step out of line. Like he's up in heaven going, I saw that. You lied. Or you cheated on your taxes. You missed your quiet time. And some of you, this is how you think God is? You're, you're you're living in this anxious anxiety, like bad things are going to happen to me and God is going to strike me down and he's going to punish me whenever I do something wrong and I step out of line and I sin. And so then I think I have to like do some good things in order to appease his wrath and get some blessings. We do this. We feel like, watch, I can't go to church after what I did this week. I got to clean myself up, right? I can't come in on Sunday morning smelling like Saturday night. I got to clean myself up a little bit. Or, 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 like, I can't ask God for anything right. I can't pray right. I, I, I didn't read my Bible at all this week. He's not going to want to listen to me right now. But if I'm on, like, a 30-day streak of reading my Bible, I'm like, well, hey, I can pray for anything now. Like, get those prayer requests in while he's happy with me. That, that's not how we relate to God. Now, I would tell you that, that our actions do have consequences, and that God does discipline those whom he loves. But in Christ, Psalm 103 tells us that he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Praise God. If you're living under the impression that you have to keep these rules in order to relate to God, then you are living under spiritual oppression, and you are going to be restlessly trying to maintain an impossible standard. And then you get ticked off when you see other people who aren't doing it. And here they are. They're like wagging their finger at Jesus' disciples for how they're breaking this rule. And I love what Jesus does. He, he gives them an example uh, from the Old Testament. He tells them about David. You know, David, you know what I'm talking about? He, he killed Goliath. He became a king. Okay. Um, it's interesting that, they would, uh, that Jesus would pick David because David is a hero for them. David, he's, he's the king from the golden age of Israel. And God said that someone from his line was going to sit on a throne forever, and he's a man after God's own heart. And so Jesus picks David and tells the story about how David technically broke a rule. 
And this is not Jesus trying to be a, a, a slick lawyer who found an exception or, or, or found a, a loophole for the Sabbath. What he's trying to say is, guys, you missed the point. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It was meant to be a blessing. The heart of the Sabbath is rest and refreshment. He says, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath, meaning you can only understand the law and understand the Sabbath when you know Christ. When you know who is, it's Lord. See, uh, the law, as I said before, he had given it to the Israelites, but he's also given it to us. The law was meant to be our teacher. Literally, it's going to take our hand, and it's going to walk us over here and show us the one who fulfilled it. When we read those things in the Old Testament, we read the, the, the rules that we have. To, it, it's meant, you were never able to keep this. But look, look. And the gospel is the great sigh of relief. That that's not how I have to relate to God. It's not about my performance. My salvation is not based on what I do, but what he has done for me. And so if you're, you've got these rules, quit piling on the rules. Quit wagging your finger at people with like this judgmental stare in your eyes. There's no way to live. You don't have to force people into this. Because Jesus is our Messiah, we can, we can rest, breathe. Now, I, I would say that as disciples, discipleship is daily taking up our cross and following Christ. We want to be obedient. And can I tell you that that is going to cost you something? But our motivation for obeying is not. Our motivation is now love and gratitude for the grace that we've received. That I don't ever have to earn salvation by what I do. Which is why Jesus would look at us and say, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Jesus changes everything. So you can rejoice and you can rest. Let me give you this third change here. You can also be restored. You can be restored. Chapter 3, um, he carries on this battle. He says, again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to that man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. And then the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So the gloves are just coming off. The conflict is boiling over here. And, and, like, you just see their absolute hatred for Jesus. Verse 2 says that they're watching Jesus to, to accuse him. So forget just trying to trap his followers. Like, like, we're just waiting for him to mess up, and they're out for blood. And, and they don't even have to set a trap. Like, like this guy just comes in. Here comes a man with a, a withered hand. And we don't really know what that means, but obviously this guy's got something wrong with his hand. And the, the best part for these religious leaders is it's Sabbath. 
and, and they've already seen that, that Jesus is moved with pity, and they've seen that he has power to heal. And so you could just picture them over in the corner. They're like, they're like rubbing their hands together, like salivating. They're like, a, like a, a predator going after his prey, just ready to pounce on this guy because they know what's coming. And verse 3 says, he says to the man, come here, which is interesting because nobody said anything. There's no question this time. But everybody knows what's about to happen. And I love that Jesus doesn't back down. He doesn't try to avoid it. He just walks right into this. You can almost see it in in slow-mo. And it gets eerily quiet. Everybody just waits to see what he's going to do. He says, I got a question for you. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? What he was saying is, you guys are still missing the point. You, they're, they're so, uh, they care more about the, the, the letter of the law and following their tradition than the heart and the intent and an opportunity to heal and to bless someone's life. So, like, do you know that, like, when, when you're nitpicking and when you're judging others, it really just shows your pride. We end up comparing myself to everybody else and and thinking that I'm better because I don't struggle like they do. And we find people's faults and we find people who have more faults than we do. People who are below us because it makes me feel better about myself when I can compare myself to them. And pride blinds you to the suffering of others. Because you're so busy admiring yourself in the mirror that that you become repulsed when somebody needy uh, you know, somebody with a withered hand comes up with you, like, that you'd, you'd rather hold up a rule book than help them. We drive by someone who's homeless and needy and think, should have gotten a job. You should have spent your money more wisely. And then Jesus takes it and he drives this question just a little bit deeper. Look at what he says. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? We're talking about a like a withered hand. I don't think he's going to lose his life right over over a hand, right? So that Jesus isn't talking about a withered hand. He knows what they're thinking in their hearts, doesn't he? It's like this is dripping with irony right here because they don't want Jesus to do any good on the Sabbath, but here they are plotting evil themselves. And so he looks at them, verse 5, in anger, grieved at their what? Their hardness of heart. See, the problem is not the rules. The problem wasn't the rules. The problem is hard hearts. They don't love God. They prove that they don't love, they hate him. They, they, they go out and they start conspiring with the, the, the Herodians to destroy him. And we don't know a whole lot about the Herodians, but these are people that are sympathetic to Herod. And just, let's just say it this way. The Pharisees and the Herodians are not friends. They're not hanging out. But we found a common enemy in Jesus. And so we hate this guy. We want to take him out. But before we jump all over the Pharisees, I think we need to be careful and recognize the same tendency in our own hearts. You see, Jesus wants us to do good. We want to obey. The Pharisees wanted to obey God. 
We want to do good. We, disciples follow his example, but not out of self-righteousness, not out of self-reliance. That just shows you have a heart problem. If I could borrow and adapt an illustration from C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, he talks about morality, and he, and he, and he likens it to ships that are out in the harbor, okay? Just picture this. You've got a bunch of water and a bunch of boats that are out there. And the problem is all these boats keep running into each other. They're crashing. We've got to do something about this. What are we going to do? And so in order to fix this problem, what we have to do is we have to make some rules. We have to get all of these boats uh, going in the same direction, avoid crossing paths and crashing into one another, hurting one another. It's kind of like traffic control. Everybody stay in your lane. This isn't bumper boats, okay? You stay where you're supposed to. You go in this direction. Here's the problem with that. Even if we get all of the boats lined up going in the same direction, the boats are broken. And they can't steer straight even if they want to. Somebody's got to fix the boats. Or, or we've said it like this. Uh, our hearts are kind of like the stupid shopping cart. You know, the, the stupid one that you pick out? Like, you, you remember that? It's, and it just always wants to go its own direction. And, and you pick it out. You thought it was fine until about 100 feet into the produce aisle. And it's like crashing into these displays. It's like, why did I get this stupid shopping cart? That's my heart. My heart is prone to sin. My heart is the broken ship. My heart is the stupid shopping cart that wants to do its own thing. I, my heart fills with pride. I love the rules, so I could do this. I could do it on my own. And, and, and if we get this idea, like, I, I've got this, then I don't really need God. But the gospel grates against prideful hearts. But it also tells us that there's one who can fix our broken hearts. Jesus can change your heart. You believe that? Look what he does in verse 5. He says to the man, here, hey, come here. Stretch out your hand. I love it. Like in that moment, all eyes are on this guy. I mean, that, that might have been a little embarrassing. Right? Everybody's watching him, and he has a choice. Nobody said anything, but you just. The tension is just palpable in the air. He, he has a choice. Am I, I going to pull back, avoid exposure and the risk of, of the tension that, that Jesus' enemies have? Like, I, I could do that. Or is he going to trust Jesus and respond? I love it. It says he stretched out his hand, which, by the way, Jesus didn't really even do any work. He just kind of said something. He stretched out his hand and it's restored. You can be restored too. If you will trust Jesus and respond in faith to him. I love that in Mark, he's already proven to us that he has the authority to forgive sins and he has the power to heal our, our deepest need and change our hearts. And you don't have to live under the weight of all of these rules and this guilt and this is how I... You don't have to do that. It does matter how you live. I, I hope you never walk away from here on, on, on at Harvest on a Sunday thinking like, oh, you know, you, you've got to go after this and just try harder and be a better person and do, 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 and do. I hope you never hear that. But I hope you also don't walk away saying, well, it doesn't matter. We can do whatever we want. Like, it doesn't matter how we live. The gospel becomes our motivation for how we live. 
how we live matters. We want to obey. We want to follow him. But we obey because we love. We obey not because we're trying to earn his love, but because he first loved us. If you're living under this weight, you're living under this oppression, the good news is that Jesus has changed it all. We don't have to be bored. We don't have to be miserable. We have reason to rejoice. Take a deep breath. Rest in the gospel. You can be restored. I'm praying that he is going to use us as disciples who get after following him because we love him this year. Father, I pray that you would do that in our hearts. You would motivate us to see that you are great, that you are glorious. Lord, I pray that you would convince us again, remind us of this truth. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to have a desire, a new heart, a new desire to be pleasing to you. Not because we have to earn your favor, but because you've given it to us freely. I don't deserve this, yet you love me. Lord, I pray that anybody here who's been under this false impression that you're just out to get them and you just want to make their life miserable whenever they step out of line, I pray that they would know grace. I pray that you would show them you want to restore, give them new hearts that will be pleasing to you. But we love you. We're excited for this new year of ministry. Asking that we follow you as disciples, knowing that that's going to bring you glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray this.